This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the home improvement giant, the Home Depot. In the U.S., the Home Depot is a key ingredient to a nice little Saturday. But beyond the power tools and building supplies is an excellent story of business execution. Why has Home Depot been such a strong performer following a housing crash and e-commerce revolution? I'm joined by Sean Standard Stockton of Ensemble Capital to break that down. We cover how Home Depot transitioned their approach to business from customer focus to capital allocation. And while Home Depot has reported strong earnings growth over the past decade and beyond that, this isn't a simple story about a growing footprint. Please enjoy this breakdown of the Home Depot. And one quick highlight ahead of our episode, we are releasing our first written business breakdown on joincolossus.com. David Kim from Scuttleblurb joined to break down the best-in-class trucker Old Dominion Freightline, or ODFL. Again, you will find that on joincolossus.com and in our weekly newsletter this upcoming weekend. So, Sean, Home Depot is a name that will be familiar to most of our listeners. And as we were prepping for this one, I was laughing to myself because I noticed some of the strategic differences between Home Depot and Lowe's seem to match my personal experiences. When I go into a Home Depot, I'm usually dealing with a customer service person who really knows what they're talking about. But they're often not warm and fuzzy. Sometimes there's a condescending tone. And it really differs from Lowe's, where I'm usually dealing with somebody who treats me very well. But oftentimes, I leave without having to answer to the question or the item that I was looking for. So maybe we can start there with what is the customer strategy for Home Depot? And how much does that differ from Lowe's? Well, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I imagine that Home Depot's management would feel a little horrified by your description. And yet, what you have experienced fits with the strategy of the two firms quite well. So Home Depot customer base is both pro-contractors and do-it-yourself homeowners. They're also more recently moving into serving multifamily or commercial real estate maintenance, MRO, and we can talk about that. But the core business, the way you think about it, for Home Depot, about 50% of the revenue comes from pro-contractors and 50% from do-it-yourself homeowners. Whereas Lowe's is about 25% pro-contractors and 75% do-it-yourself homeowners. And the history of the firm and the strategy at Home Depot really speaks to what you experienced, which is that Home Depot is a place for people who know what they're doing and for weekend warriors who maybe want to feel like they know what they're doing. So to go into Home Depot and maybe not have the best customer service, but to have sawdust on the ground and have some early contractor explain to you how to do something you've never done before is the appeal. Whereas for Lowe's, being able to go in, having good lighting, low shelving, small bag size, have someone help you carry something out to the car is a much more important experience for their average customer. Yeah, it's an interesting experience where 
if I'm getting my coffee, I'm much less willing to deal with customer service that isn't there or is a little more condescending. But when it comes to something like this, where I'm looking for something and I know that they're going to have the answer, I've gone 180 and really switched allegiances from Lowe's to Home Depot. I'm curious how the sales process works for a pro versus a DIYer. And if they're buying from the same stores, if there's major differences in terms of that customer mix, what the margins look like on those customers, and any major differences that you would elaborate on between those two types of customers. Basically, the way I think about it is that the pro contractor who's going to Home Depot is not somebody who's building a house and going there for their entire job lot quantities of everything. The pro contractor either is doing a small job at someone's house, doing some maintenance, replacing a bathroom, or they're doing larger scale contracts, but they haven't purchased most of the goods from Home Depot for that project. For the contractor, they're going to find out through the job, even if it's a small job, that, oh, I don't have this one part that I need. And that one part may stop the entire job from progressing. So pro contractors send runners out to Home Depot every day, every other day during jobs, maybe multiple times a day. And what is critical is the job might be costing the homeowner $20,000, but there is a part that's 15 bucks at Home Depot and some broader part of the project can't continue until that piece is acquired. It's really critical that Home Depot have the parts in stock and be very close by saying, we'll deliver it tomorrow. The whole job comes to a halt. For the pro contractor, it's almost like a convenience store or inventory replenishment for consumables on the job. Whereas for the do-it-yourself homeowner, they're much more likely to say, this week, I'm going to do this project and they're going to buy some stuff in advance. But they too will realize, oh my gosh, I need this piece. They need the whole job lot order. They're ordering all the stuff for your little project you're going to do, but you also need to go there quickly during the day to go grab something. If you don't, it's not going to cost you tons of money away for the pro contractor, but you say, well, I can't finish it today. And tomorrow I got to take the kids to baseball game. Next week and we're out of town, I can't finish this project for two weeks. And so you need the part immediately. And that's a key part of what Home Depot is able to provide. As far as profit margins between the two, it's really quite similar. That seems a little counterintuitive. You would think pros get discount pricing, but they're both being served this just-in-time inventory management service. Yeah, the convenience factor makes a ton of sense. When you think about the market size overall, putting those two together, how big is the market? And is there a way to measure how much Home Depot controls today and compare that to how much Lowe's controls today? Most people think themselves, well, it's really just Home Depot and Lowe's. So the two of them must have market share and they split up the whole market. The entire market for home improvement is pretty hard to measure. Home Depot recently updated their assessment to $900 billion a year in spend. Home Depot does about $155 billion. So a significant player for sure, but certainly not a market share dominator as you have in other categories. Lowe's is about 95 billion. So they're a good deal smaller than Home Depot. But again, you're talking about maybe 10% of the market. An ultra fragmented set of other providers, both to the pros, as well as your local hardware shop and Ace and Walmart. I mean, these products are sold different ways, but it is a massive market. And that's a big part of the reason why Home Depot has been able to grow very nicely over a very long period of time. And we think has very durable long-term growth ahead as well. In terms of that market size, I would assume there's some correlation to the housing market. And obviously, as home improvement, it has some tie to the home market. But when you think about the growth and the history of the business, can you trace back to this industry, how Home Depot has played a role in developing the industry, anything that you would point to there that's been key in driving 
what was, I think, a much smaller industry at the time that they were founded into such a behemoth today. The whole scope of their history is beyond what we can talk about today, but there is an excellent book called Made from Scratch, authored by two of the founders, that really gets into the entire storyline here. And it's one of those great business stories. But I think what is most interesting to know is that in many ways, Home Depot invented the weekend warrior do-it-yourself category. So of course, people worked on their homes prior to Home Depot. They built the business to serve some sort of market. But Home Depot was really the first to say, you, the homeowner, you can do this stuff. You can do real jobs. We can help you go replace the tile in your bathroom. This isn't just about putting in a new light bulb outside your garage or something. One of my favorite stories from the book talks about the opening of one of their first stores. And the employees of this first couple stores were really excited and everything. And they stayed up all night long shining the floors of the store. So it would look perfect when things opened. And the next morning, Arthur and Bernie, the two founders, came in and freaked out because you know what doesn't have shined floors is where contractors go. And they said, guys, I mean, thanks for trying this, but we got to scratch this all back up. Go get some sawdust. We got to throw it on the floor. What they recognize is that they weren't building a retail store. They were building a store for real contractors and for the homeowner who was going to go into this real contractor environment and be taught and shown and provide the tools to go do real contractor work at home. That was entirely new. And that has grown over time to today. As a do-it-yourself homeowner, you can pull out the app, get video instructions for doing things, sign up for virtual webinars that teach you how to do different products, go in, get hands-on work, get the sort of assistance that you were talking about that's in detail around, well, that pipe's not going to work for this sort of use case. You got to get this one, Matt. That's a really critical part of what they do. And I think that history has stuck with them. And even though they didn't begin trying to serve the pro contractor, it speaks to why they're able to serve pro contractors today in huge size, because since their founding, they were designed to be this pro-type environment. I love that. Creating a environment where your customer feels comfortable or adding credibility to your own business by creating that environment that looks right to the customer. And then at the same time, expanding a market by enabling someone like myself to feel more comfortable doing projects. I think about the 90s and football commercials, and you had pickup trucks and Home Depot commercials that were playing constantly and really trying to enable a new customer. When was the business actually founded? And can you trace back to any major pivots that they've had over the timeline of founding to where they are today? Because it is such a large business. I'd be curious to know if they immediately went with a single store or if the idea was always to open multiple locations and expand nationally. So they opened in the late 70s and really grew throughout the 80s. And then, of course, the 1990s, you started to have this big growing economy, a strong stock market, a solid housing market, and they really put the pedal to the metal. What we think about Home Depot today really blossomed in the 1990s. Its earliest founding was a couple stores and they did some acquisitions and they were figuring out what this model is all about. But it was in the 1990s where they really spread out across the country. The important pivot points in the history is really going into the 1990s, then the stock market fell apart. But remember, the housing market then began its own huge run. And then the Home Depot of the early 2000s during the housing bubble was its own thing. But the founders retired prior to the crash of the housing bubble and handed off to some management that came in and I think most people would say got away from many of the founding principles of the business. But that CEO left, existing Home Depot employees took over, built the business back up, 
And one of the amazing things about the company is that they've basically built almost no new stores since the housing crash 15 years ago, and yet have grown revenue and earnings tremendously. That really speaks to how the strategy changed, but it was in the wake of the housing crash that the pro-business came to become this dominant thing. So the pivot points are the founders retiring in the late 90s, the housing crash, the poor management, and then the reinvigoration of the business in large part from the rise of the pro-customer service. Yeah, maybe we can dive into that footprint strategy now. When I think about looking at various types of physical presence, big box stores, there's usually some reference to being within X amount of miles of 75% of the population or 90% of the population. How does Home Depot think about it? And what drove that decision to stop expanding store count and just focus on what they had? Their store count today is about 2,300 stores. It was about 2,300 stores back in 2008, just to give you some context of how flat it has been for a long period of time. The company says that their stores are within 10 miles of 90% of the U.S. population. They can also deliver same day or next day to 90% of the U.S. population. And so you don't really need one of these stores any closer than 10 miles. In fact, there's many areas where you have two stores within nearly 10 miles in more concentrated population areas. There isn't necessarily a need for more stores unless those stores are so full of traffic. They're too busy, right? So you need another store. That hasn't become the case, and they're able to serve a lot of transactions without people walking through the stores. But it's an interesting thing to have this growing retailer that doesn't grow its store count. That is part of the reason why their economics have become so fantastic. Yeah, and I would be curious to know the revenue model, revenue growth over time. How much has that mimicked GDP in the US or any type of housing market data? Is it a very close tie to those metrics? Is the correlation essentially one between the housing market and Home Depot, or have they been able to outperform for some reason? Let's start, say, 2012 to 2019. So after the housing crash is finished and prior to COVID, we know that GDP growth, nominal GDP, was about 4% over that time period. The company grew revenue is about 6% per year over that time period in a very stable way. I think the lowest annual growth rate was like 5.5%. The fastest was 7.5%. So this very stable growth rate, it's about growing with the overall economy, but also the amount that people spend on their homes as a percent of GDP does change over time. But Home Depot's volatility is not just about housing transactions or home prices or even interest rates, really. It doesn't have the cyclicality that many other housing-related companies do. And is that just a tie to a maintenance spend that's required for any type of home? I can imagine the story being something along the lines of when you don't have new homes being built, you have old homes being maintained. But I'm curious if there's more to it in terms of what breaks the correlation to the macro economy. I would say even management, they've ceased to be surprised. In the past, we're surprised that interest rates didn't have more influence on their business. But well before COVID, we asked this question all the time. Remember in 2018, we had the Fed raising rates and everything and home sales were declining and analysts were worried. And the company made a comment, something to the effect of, we've tried every which way to find a correlation between interest rates and our business, but we gave up because we just can't find one. And that seems so weird in a housing business, but you're right. It's mostly because it's about maintenance. So if you think about a home, 1% of the home value needs to be reinvested in the house every year. It comes very steady. The roof giving out doesn't care if it's a recession or if it's good times. So clearly there is a boost when people are doing big cash out refis and they're saying, hey, let's tear this out and make it wonderful and all these different sorts of things. 
most of the spend at Home Depot, the average transaction size, like 75 bucks a visit, as my point. Yes, they do sell some bigger lot sizes and they're actually building more of that, which we can talk about in the pro category. But a lot of it's this maintenance spend. For the weekend home projects, people aren't doing a cash out refi to go fix a part of their deck, that a back deck gate that's falling apart or something like that. And the pros in generally being active is important, but Home Depot isn't necessarily participating more or less in a larger, smaller job size. It's about, is a pro needing to go out regular? So is there activity going on? I don't want anyone to get the impression that the housing market is irrelevant to Home Depot. The amount of home equity is important because homeowners feel that if their house is very valuable, they are more justified in reinvesting into it. That logic as a financial analyst breaks down. You wonder what's that thinking about? But there's a sense that if it's high and rising, then I'm getting paid to reinvest in it. But if my home value is low and falling, I'm losing money even though I'm reinvesting in it. And that's not actually true, but it does drive homeowner behavior. So many of consumers' behaviors are not necessarily rational. We can explain them to ourselves, but it does check out. When you think about the revenue growth and historically that 6% over the past 10 years, how much of that can be traced back to more traffic in the stores? I think you referenced the tickets going up for each individual customer. Is that Home Depot passing through pricing? What's driving the revenue when you think about volume in terms of people coming through the stores versus price and them raising prices? So the company has probably one of the most consistent gross profit margins of any business ever studied. It really only moves within 10 basis points or so year over year. I mean, there's some volatility on a quarterly basis. And what is that gross margin? So the gross profit margin has averaged about 34.5% with a range of 34 to 35 or something like that over a decade with a lot of volatility. So they are generally are going to have the lowest cost. It's an everyday low cost sort of model. So they're effectively just able to pass on pricing, which we've seen during COVID, which has been really important. So even though lumber prices, all these things went wild over the last couple of years, up and down and up and down, there's been a little more volatility in gross profit margin, but just a little bit more. They really are able to just pass that on. But there has been increasing basket size. So this is more units per visit. And this has to do with the pro. Pros have bigger basket sizes. And one of the things I mentioned earlier, half of the revenue comes from pros. But pros only make up about 5% of the customer base. It's just that they're going far more frequently than the homeowner does. And when they go, they're spending more on each visit. That huge differential means that this small super cohort drives half the business. And it's a really key part of why we think Home Depot is so competitively advantaged and why it's such a more powerful business for investors like us than Lowe's focused on the do-it-yourself business. That's a pretty fascinating delta, the 5 to 50%. And I guess you could just look at most DIYers are going on the weekends, one or two days a week versus the five to six days that contractors will work to explain at least some of it. You mentioned a little bit about the inventory dynamics and what we went through with COVID. I am curious as a business and thinking about the return metrics, how much inventory they actually have to hold, being the convenience outlet for both pros and DIYers. You need to make sure that you have the inventory on hand. How have they managed that historically? And how much of a role has that played in the financial performance? So inventory turns are very high in the order of 8x. It's been rising over time. And part of that has to do with the way that the company has really invested in recent years in distribution centers, DCs like what Amazon has. And this is part of the reason why they've been able to grow so much even without growing their store count. 
more and more product is being shipped directly to job sites for the pros and also more and more do-it-yourself customers are ordering online, whether that's a delivery straight to the homeowner or whether the homeowner is going to pick it up in person, which amazingly enough, over half of all online orders for Home Depot are picked up in person same day. Curbside checkout is important for many omnichannel retailers these days, but for it to be over 50% says this is something different because Personally, I order from Amazon because I don't want to go to the store. So why are half of them going in person? And it speaks to this convenience factor. I need the product now. I'm sitting on my back deck realizing I'm missing a part on my phone, typing into the app. Yes, they have it, ordering it, and then immediately getting my car and picking it up because it's ready 30 minutes later. All of those things have driven higher asset turns, inventory turns, because you have more of this product coming in and it's not just what's in the stores. So you mentioned the 35% ish gross profit margin for the business. How does that actually flow through in terms of full operating margins and what the business is producing from an income perspective, how much they need to reinvest back in the business? How do you look at the economic model as a whole? It's really interesting because you basically have the gross profits. And then from there, they're paying their SG&A costs and then the DNA on the stores and on the fulfillment that they do. The DNA is an important component, but it's on the order of 2% of revenue. The operating margins have gone from high single digits, 10% about a decade ago, up to 15% today. So 50% increase in operating margins, even as revenue is growing very stably at 6%. So you get this very nice kind of profit growth. And what that's about is that their SG&A expenses are more tied to transaction volumes. So it's like, how many baskets are we checking out? That speaks to how many people we need. As they have been successful in driving more and more larger basket sizes and higher prices overall, they've really leveraged the SG&A. So SG&A was up around 22 23% about a decade ago. It's down to about 17% right now. It may be temporarily low due to the very high revenues related to COVID. But even in 2019, it was 17.5%. They've gotten a lot of that leverage. And one of the interesting debates on Home Depot is how long can they keep SG&A growing just at transaction level as opposed to stabilizing? And it's a difficult question to answer, but most indicators are is they have many more years of leverage left as they keep driving a business model in which the SG&A is tied to transactions as opposed to revenue. It's an interesting point. And my mind immediately went to the potential for the checkouts to be essentially fully electronic. But when I do go into Home Depot, oftentimes I am looking for someone who can answer a question. If I'm not picking up directly something I ordered online, I'm looking for some type of service, some type of consultant to give me an answer to something. So there's probably some lower limit, but it's very interesting to see how much leverage they've gotten out of that. I'm curious how that would compare to a Lowe's. Are they drastically different in terms of the earnings profiles and profitability? Home Depot has very strong returns on invested capital of about 35 to 45%. That's the very special thing that they do relative to Lowe's and to most other retailers for that matter. Just on an operating margin basis, Lowe's runs operating income around 13% or so. It's a number of points lower than Home Depot. And a lot of that just has to do with the scale. Gross profits are very similar at Lowe's and Home Depot just does a better job at turning their inventory and moving more revenue through the stores that they have. And a lot more of that drops to the bottom line. Makes sense. In terms of the return on invested capital, very attractive metrics there, north of 30%. 
you mentioned earlier, they have an expanded storefront. So I imagine that the CapEx budget has been fairly limited. We've seen this with other businesses where they are able to generate these high returns on capital. But over time, it comes at the expense of not investing back into the business. You mentioned something about distribution centers and the general shift to more online purchases requiring some investment. Has that changed materially in recent years in terms of how much money they have to put back in the business, what the CapEx budget looks like? And how does the company position itself for more and more of their business being done online? You're exactly right. So CapEx in terms of store growth or store maintenance, really, since there's no growth, has been very stable over time. And they clearly have to maintain their stores and upgrade them and keep current with modern standards. From 2017 through 19, and then in various ways, completing it through COVID, they have made larger CapEx spend. Exactly the reason you're talking about is building out these DC centers and fulfillment and preparing for the pro and being in a position where they can do these large order sizes. So $1,000 plus baskets have been growing much faster than smaller basket sizes for Home Depot. And that's somebody saying, I'm going to order lumber for this job for you and having flatbed trucks that go right from the DC center to delivery. And so there has been actually a heavy CapEx spend that's coming to an end right now. But it was really focused on serving delivery outside of the store and then through the maintenance and upgrading of the whole business. They're kind of through that now. But this is a business that we would expect as investors are going to relentlessly maintain and improve those stores. And hopefully there are some areas to add some more stores. It's kind of a funny thing where the question is, will they get forced to build more stores or is it they build the stores to grow? And so in a way, assuming there's more store growth ahead is an acknowledgement of capital spend that we required, as opposed to many retailers, you would think, oh, good, they're going to grow more stores. And so in our view, the longer they cannot build stores, the better. At some point, they might have to build some more. Absolutely. There's a certain saturation point for sure. And there's all the dynamics that go into expanding capacity and whether that's actually needed or not. But certainly interesting to see how they've come across and implemented the approach of limiting the capital spend. Do you have a sense of what that looks like in a normalized environment as a percentage of revenue or how you would think about CapEx for this business as they get out of that investment phase? Yeah, about 2% of revenue. It's actually been lower than that in the past, other than the big reinvestment cycle we talked about. But the company is guided to around 2%. And that seems reasonable. They could end up being a bit lower than that. I think they've been more like 1.8 on average in the past. I love a business that DNA matches general CapEx spend. It makes things a lot easier from a mental model perspective. You talked a bit about the supply chain dynamics, obviously what we went through with COVID. Can you actually talk a little bit about that entire system and how it operates? Who is Home Depot purchasing from? How much impact did they have on their business when we saw these huge lead times happen across anything that was related to housing in recent years? And how much impact do they wear? Is it just simply pent-up demand that they can't sell into? Or are there other impacts that they feel as well from the supply chain bottlenecks and the dynamics there? The supply chain issues were just a nightmare for them. In late March of 2020, the general assumption was the housing market was just going to fall apart and stay dead for years. There was just a halt to all activity. But it only took about a month before housing to come like screaming back. And suddenly people woke up to the idea that, well, wait a second, if everyone's trapped in their home, maybe they're going to spend some money on their homes. And the whole dynamic changed and Home Depot ended up growing revenue by about 30%, about five years of growth in a year or two. 
it's even hard to imagine how did they pull that off? Like how do they functionally grow? Most companies can't get five years in growth in a year and survive. Home Depot had to do some amazing heavy lifting to make that work. So for instance, as you had major cargo ship issues, they are one of the biggest retailers in the world. They just chartered their own ship to run back and forth to Asia. They and Costco, I think was one of the other companies I saw do that. It was a rare company that could do that. Imagine you're even a national company, but you can't charter your own ocean freight ships. This is a really big deal for them. All through the pandemic, as they've grown their revenue, they have said consistently, our limited inventory is slowing revenue. In other words, we could grow even more if we could get more inventory. Now, of course, so many retailers are looking at, oh, we have too much inventory. This is a very important debate on Home Depot. It's hard to say. A lot of it depends on what is revenue levels going to be in the next couple of years is going to answer your questions about inventory. But I think the key thing is that they have worked very hard with their supplier partners to stay as much in stock as possible. And that's a really critical thing, especially for their pro contractors. We can talk a bit about the relationship with their suppliers, because I really think it fits into what we at Ensemble think of as stakeholder value analysis, that Home Depot has been committed since their founding to make sure all of their stakeholders win. We are not an ESG strategy, but we think that making sure everyone in your ecosystem is winning allows you to win as a company and your shareholders to win, rather than if you're seeking to exploit and extract value from those stakeholders. And the relationship with suppliers is really key. And did that manifest itself with a willingness to take higher prices, to take delays? How did that actually show up in terms of operations? And we can probably use the COVID period as a good lens for that. If you think about Walmart, they were famous or are famous for cramming down prices, making demands. You're going to make stuff the way ever we want it. Costco, a stock that we've owned and think is an amazing company, they're not as brutal with their suppliers, but it's still, you're going to give us this special unit size that's only for us. And there's these requirements to work with them. Of course, Home Depot has their own requirements, but our impression is they haven't focused as much on how can we extract as much of the value out of the suppliers and minimize the suppliers' own returns. One of the ways that showed up was in the earliest days of COVID, Home Depot was deemed an essential service. Remember how crazy, none of us knew what stores were open and what wasn't open. I'm looking around, reading the new government regulations, just started picking up the phone and calling Home Depots across the country. So they needed overnight to figure out how do we keep our employees safe. One of the things they did was they turned to their major paint supplier, PPG, and said, we can't get hand sanitizer. Would you turn one of your paint lines into a hand sanitizer line? PB&G delivered 100,000 gallons of hand sanitizer to Home Depot very quickly and just started making more and more hand sanitizer for them. So what kind of supplier says, we're going to make a product we don't even make for you as our customer on this pivot? But this was really about Home Depot recognizing To get through COVID, we need to get through, but all our suppliers need to get through. And the suppliers recognizing if Home Depot doesn't get through, we don't get through. And to me, COVID was this shining example of how businesses work in this ecosystem of other players. And we all think about competition, but actually it's this cooperation that we're all in. Everyone getting to the other side of COVID was the only way for anyone to get to the other side of COVID. And I really feel like Home Depot recognized that with their suppliers, but also with their frontline staff giving big multi-billion dollar additional bonuses all year long in 2020 and in 2021, recognizing that they were asking people to come to work pre-vaccine with limited scientific knowledge of how safe this actually was. And people did show up and they were able to drive revenue up 30% in a year. 
that's a really interesting contrast to a name you mentioned before, Walmart, where I can remember the different restrictions that they put on truckers when they could show up, tightening the windows, notoriously difficult dealing with any types of drop-offs with Walmart. And I think that backfired on them fairly quickly, but a tale of two cities there in terms of how they operated through something in an intense moment like that, when you inflict or ask for favors and when you push your power onto different stakeholders in your ecosystem. I'm curious about any other impacts that they had during COVID beyond the lack of inventory and the pent-up demand that they weren't able to sell into. Did they get hit from any inflationary factors? I think you mentioned from a gross margin perspective, it's been steady. So is that not something that they have to directly deal with because of their ability to quickly change prices? Yeah, so the gross margin level, they've been able to keep pricing up with whatever inflation there was. Lumber's been the wild card. So lumber went up 400% and crashed back down and surged back up again. And lumber's a low margin product for them. So that is, in our view, most of the variability in gross margin and the reduction, which is tens of basis points, has been from surging lumber sales. Prices have come back down now, they'll go the other way. But overall, they've most likely passed it on. Now, they've been passing on basket increases. And they don't report like-for-like price increases versus basket increases. And if you're buying more units, that's going to drive up or if pros grow. So it's hard to say. But this year, for instance, basket's been growing kind of a high single digit in line with CPI. There is inflation in building products. We just saw a survey from John Burns Consulting, one of the best housing industry consultants. And they had a survey every month since COVID began asking about whether the supply chain was better or worse. And this most recent month in September, for the first time, 100% of respondents said that the supply chain was the same or getting better. Nobody was saying it was getting worse. So we're clearly coming out the other side there. And some prices like lumber have come all the way back down. But overall, economically, there wasn't a whole lot of crazy impacts or at least they managed through them as they did. I think the crazy impact is the 30% increase in revenue. And where does that go from here? That's the big demand on the stock. Thinking about other potential expense pressures from a labor perspective, what does the labor pool look like? How much pressure is there when you have tight jobs markets like we are still in today? I know that puts a lot of pressure on other, what I would consider entry-level jobs. Where does Home Depot fall? Are they a level above this? Obviously, there tends to be a specific type of person that works at Home Depot that has a very different skill set. So I'm just curious if they saw any inflationary pressure on the wage side of things. In 2020, revenue was up 20% and SG&A was up 24%. And a lot of that was wages. But it wasn't necessarily large hourly wage increases. There was some of that for sure. A lot of it was these bonuses, COVID bi-weekly bonuses. So this is keeping people coming in and doing the work under difficult conditions. In 2021, revenue grew another 14% and SG&A only grew 4%. This year, SG&A is also growing below single digit rate. And so, yes, there is inflation just we're seeing with all hourly workers. But I think that Home Depot in general has done a really good job by their employees, paying well, providing training, getting people there to work there for a while. So those sorts of businesses are under less pressure because if you've been exploiting your employees for the last decade and suddenly there's bargaining power, those employees don't just want a reasonable raise now. They want to claw back what you exploited from them in the past. And I believe that in general, that is not something that Home Depot has been subject to. Yes, they have to raise wages because there's more competitive wages out there, but they don't necessarily have this clawback. And you're seeing it within the fast food industry. 
One way to think about what's going on is that fast food industry successfully exploited their employees for a long time. And now that the power's on their foot, employees are going and saying, I want my wage boost for inflation, but I want the last few years of exploitation back too. Yeah, you can really make a difference in terms of loyalty. It certainly seems like a strategic move that falls into the same category as how they treat their stakeholders on the supplier side of things. Certainly well thought out there. As you think about opportunity looking ahead, I think you've danced around a few of the items here where you could talk about new locations, maybe there's potential for new markets. But how do you think about growth as a business and where Home Depot goes from here over the next three to five years? I think that there's a couple key pieces to put the surging revenue in context. One, you can look at the amount of spend per occupied housing unit in the United States over time. And what you see is that over the last 40, 50 years, it's been very volatile around a stable average. Today, it's about $800 in real terms per housing unit per homeowner making these sorts of investments. But that has surged all over the place. But it was huge in the bubble years of 2003, 4, 5, but it crashed and has been below average for over a decade. So you've had this limited investment in homes, limited maintenance going on. You also had limited home transactions. So much of what we think about the housing price pop that occurred makes it feel like housing's on fire, but housing activity has been slow for like 15 years. To our way of thinking about it, a fair bit of the revenue growth has been more catch up to normal levels. Now the question is, where does it go on a go forward basis? And excluding just recessionary cyclicality, we think that revenue growth has come up to and maybe somewhat above normalized level, but not a lot. And I think the really key thing for investors to try and analyze is the trends in do-it-yourself versus pro. Because in the past, prior to COVID, they might have grown differently. Pro outgrew do-it-yourself for Home Depot. But on a short cycle basis, they trended together. That did not happen during COVID. And the reason is, think about the second quarter of 2020. This is when the homeowners were saying, the only way I can socialize at all is on my back deck outside. So better go fix up the back deck. Better go get a new barbecue. I can't travel. I'm going to go do stuff for the home. Home Depot does not break out do-it-yourself versus pro same-store sales. Lowe's reports total, and low reports what the pro same-store sales is. So you can make some assumptions around similar trends of the two categories and parse out what those growth rates have been for Home Depot. From our view, what it looks like is that you had this massive growth in do-it-yourself early on in the second quarter of 2023, probably up something like 24% year-over-year same-store sales growth for the do-it-yourself category. But then the pros were like, I can't get a permit. The permit offices are closed. And the homeowner's like, I don't want a contractor in my house. No one's vaccinated yet. So you had this shift where suddenly the do-it-yourself homeowners were spending like mad, but the pros couldn't. Then suddenly you had the larger boom happen. The do-it-yourselfers started saying, I spent tons of money on the house last year. I think I'm going to go to Europe, say now 2021, 2022. Today, in our estimation, all of the surge in the do-it-yourself piece has come fully back to trend now. And pro is still growing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So we estimate that pro growth was something on the order of 20% in the first quarter of 2022, stacking on top of about 20% same-store sales the prior year. Now, it looks like in the second quarter, a mid-teens level. And the question becomes, where does it go from here? And this is why a lot of investors rightly, in our view, worry that you're going to have some revenue declines next year. It's really hard to scope out what that's going to be, though. One thing we know is that even today, 
contractors that are doing maintenance work or remodeling, they're still booked out for months and months and months. Yes, large scale remodels using HELOCs and stuff like that may well slow down. But as far as the ongoing maintenance and everything, that's still required. And think about the homeowner today. The average homeowner has more home equity with lower LTV than ever in American history. They all have jobs. They've been getting wage boosts. And the average homeowner was able to keep their job through COVID, had low expenses in 2020, 2021, got the stimulus from the government. They've got huge cash balances. So now you have this environment in which the homeowners, even if you start having some layoffs, even if you have some price depreciation of homes, still end up with record high levels of home equity, huge borrowing capacity if they want to go use a HELOC. And once upon a time, people would borrow on HELOC at 7% and do some work. We think that's crazy now, but it's not like it's implausible. And if you're borrowing 10,000 bucks to do a bathroom, 7% interest doesn't kill you in the way that it does if you're trying to buy a house with a 7% interest rate. If you go back to the housing bubble, how much of the slowdown for Home Depot was lagged? You mentioned you're still seeing these impressive growth numbers. And I think I still see it around me in my neighborhood today. There's still a lot of construction being done. And I don't have a great answer as to whether this was something that started a year ago and they just could get the contractor today, or if it's just a steady state demand. But I'm curious if historically there's been a lagged impact as it relates to the economy and then seeing a slowdown for their business. The housing bubble is probably best understood as having peaked in 2006. So a lot of listeners might think about, well, wasn't it 2008 that the crash happened? And that's true. That was the lagged impact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Home Depot's revenue was declining by the end of 2006. So for them, it correlated pretty closely. However, this time is a very different dynamic than that housing situation. When I say different, I don't mean different than every housing downturn. But what happened during the housing bubble was not just a home price appreciation, it was a mortgage lending bubble. So you had people getting access to cash through first mortgages and second mortgages that was beyond their capacity to ever repay. That's what we all know now is that those loans were made to people. It was known they would not be able to repay. So you injected this huge amount of spending power to people who would never be able to maintain it on a sustainable level. And then when that disappeared, you had this rolling collapse of the housing market. This time around during COVID, yes, home prices went up a whole lot, but down payments stayed at 20%. It was the highest credit score buyers that bought all these homes in the last couple of years. You have not seen any sort of easy credit environment. And because of that, you have this huge level of home equity and you don't necessarily have forced sellers. That's what was really going on during the housing crash was you had a huge amount of forced sellers pouring inventory onto the market. This time you have new home builders who are still completing homes. There's a segment there that could be forced selling in a sense, but not the average homeowner. We really do think it's a very different dynamic. Remember too, that the housing crash was the worst housing environment in a century. And I feel that today, because for many people, it's their only memory of a weak housing market. They think that's what every housing weakness is like. Same thing with recessions. People worry about recession now. Well, guess what? Most recessions are pretty mild. The financial crisis is not your average recession. It was the worst in a century. No two look alike. They might resemble, but certainly differences there. When you think about today's environment and the average homeowner, I think many people were able to purchase homes in the past couple of years or particularly last year, get into some really attractive refinancing, it positions the homeowner as someone who has this really attractive fixed locked-in rate, fixed expense, 
And if they were to sell their home, they would have to enter into a mortgage, which is substantially higher, substantially more expensive, and deal with all the dynamics of moving. And this is a long way of saying it seems like people might be locked into their current homes for extended periods of time. How do you think about that dynamic as it relates to Home Depot and the impact that it might have on the business? That's exactly right. So the way to think about it is that economically, homeowners won the pandemic because they were able to live much more comfortably in a home during the pandemic. They were able to work from home. These are higher income earners. Home Depot says that their average customer has $100,000 a year median income. That's just what homeowners are. About two thirds of the country are homeowners, one third are renters. If you look at unemployment numbers early in COVID, if you give it some thought, you realize, oh my gosh, homeowner unemployment was probably in the mid to high single digits. I mean, bad, but nothing terrible. But unemployment renters early in COVID was probably like 25%, like the Great Depression sorts of levels. That has carried on even as the economy has improved. And so to your point, 95% of homeowners today either own the home outright without a mortgage or have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at an average interest rate of 3.3%. Those costs are not inflating right now. Those are fixed loans. And it was a drop in the monthly payment from earlier. So you had deflation for the existing homeowner who you had deflation in their cost structure and they fixed that for 30 years. These same people are mostly employed, getting wage boosts. Their 401ks did well. They're doing well overall. So you have these homeowners that are doing very well economically. Suddenly, there's not really many options to move. Swapping from a 3.3% mortgage into a 7% mortgage is pretty insane. Now, some people will do that because you move out of the San Francisco Bay Area where I am, you buy something in Cleveland, Ohio, New York Times just did a whole piece on New Yorkers wanting to move there, recognizing, oh my gosh, you get a palatial house for $600,000. So there will still be some of those moves for sure. But in general, it seems to us that homeowners are really going to stick in their homes, but they still need to change their homes around to serve work from home on a more permanent basis. They're still going to have another kid and they're going to need another bedroom. They're still going to need to do more work and absent the ability to move up. Many people would say, well, let's make this place better. Let's go put in a pool. Let's go put in a deck. Let's go up another level. And so it does seem that what the Fed has engineered by basically dropping and then locking the cost of servicing your home for homeowners has caused an environment which homeowners are going to stay there and likely are going to do remodeling. And if some people lose their job, that will decline for a while. But then we're going to come to the other side of the recession and people will still be locked in place. So we do think that there is this unusual tailwind to remodeling. The other piece of that, and this is beyond the scope of just Home Depot, is that you still have young families who want to buy a home, even in a high interest rate environment. And so There's going to need to be a lot of new homes built because new homes are a small part of total home sales every year, but they're going to need to serve a lot of purchase demand going forward. When you think about potential risks, how does Amazon factor into this, if at all? I remember 10 years ago, or maybe even longer than that now, the idea was that clothing would never be disrupted by e-commerce because you needed to try things on. I think there's a very logical reason why a lot of the building materials associated with Home Depot shouldn't necessarily be disrupted. But how do you answer that? And how do you think about the competitive threat of things moving more and more online? Well, let me answer your question directly. We don't think Amazon's a relevant competitor in a way that's meaningful to Home Depot. The difference is that when people were making those speculations about apparel, it was much earlier in the era of e-commerce. Today, e-commerce has already exploded, and yet Home Depot only does a low double-digit percent of total sales on an e-commerce basis. And as I mentioned earlier, half of all of those orders are picked up in-store by the customer who's making the order. So there just doesn't appear to be an appetite for online orders with delivery even a day or two later. Now, Home Depot has those capabilities. In fact, they have awesome e-commerce capabilities. They've got very fast delivery and a really strong app. They're very well positioned there. On the pro side, 
if you're a pro, you're managing online orders and you want to deliver it to various job sites and all these sorts of things. Imagine if you log into an Amazon account and you're sending product to all different sorts of addresses. Well, Amazon very quickly is going to shut you down. This is clearly fraud. But for a pro, it's like, no, this is a business online ordering thing, right? So the whole interface for the pro is different. And I think that's another way in which it's fundamentally different than just going on to an e-commerce website and ordering something. I hate to sit there and say anybody is not a relevant competitor because these are big companies that can make big investments. But I think it's about a decade now that people have been worried about Amazon. If that was going to happen, it would have happened, really. And I think with apparel, it was more an assumption about people's comfort and behavior. And it's hard to predict people's psychological decision-making. Whereas with home improvement, it's more structural to the category. Even just the weight and size of some of these orders make delivery very expensive. And then this need for literally same-day access is different than where we are with e-commerce. Sure. The example of delivering to different homes is one that is excellent and I hadn't thought about. Amazon's just a fascinating competitor or a potential upside catalyst. We can ask the question one of two ways in each of these conversations. Is Amazon the potential buyout of XYZ business or is Amazon the potential threat to this business? Because it just shows up in so many investor presentations and understandably so. I think they've earned the respect to be considered in that category. But to your point, it's been many years of e-commerce development. And I think Home Depot and Lowe's have both held on to their market share here. What other risks do you see out there? Obviously, we have the macro risks. Are there other things that are top of mind as an investor when you look at something like Home Depot? At Ensemble, we have very long-term holding periods. And yet we worry about all of our companies all of the time. Always some sort of risk out there. So with Home Depot, I think there's a handful One is we all know how hard it has been to predict spending patterns during COVID. And now what we've all learned this year is that the exit from COVID has also been extremely hard to understand these patterns. Think about something like travel. It's still roaring, even in Europe. And it's really hard to wrap your head around that, given the worries that people have, especially again in Europe. But that being said, there's clearly a risk of declining revenue in the short term. We also know that home equity is at monster levels and maybe just won't decline. It's difficult to say. If you were owning the stock with an eye towards 2023 estimates and your thesis was around that, then there's a real call to make here. The stock's gotten quite discounted. So even much weaker than consensus numbers in 2023 may not be a catalyst for a further decline in the stock. But for investors like us, it's much more about comfort around a three to five year plus level of business activity and feeling quite confident that maybe the path there will be a sharp decline in recovery. But we don't think that that spending level is way above the secular trend. Might be a little bit above, but nothing really huge. That's the most relevant near-term consideration for the stock. And the other longer-term one is around the SG&A leverage that I mentioned. How long is that going for? And you have to have a view on that. It speaks to what you think terminal margins are going to be. And there's a range of debates there, and it could be higher or lower than what we're estimating. Lowe's is also working on serving pros better. So Marvin Ellis, their CEO, worked at Home Depot for a number of years. Lowe's is focused on trying to grow their pro business. But over time, as they focused on that, they don't appear to have really picked up any market share from Home Depot. And I think that some of it are, if you're trying to serve this do-it-yourself homeowner with brands geared to say this is a simple electric power drill to use and it's inexpensive, which is great for the weekend warrior, the pros like, that's not even the brands we buy. So for Lowe's to do that well, they almost need to maintain two sets of product categories. And in some areas, there's not a difference between pro and do-it-yourself, but in others, there are. 
Whereas Home Depot is like, well, Mr. and Mrs. Do-It-Yourself, this is the place to come get the pro stuff. They have the inventory already in place there. But that being said, you can't just ignore Lowe's by any means. The supply chain situations and a lot of stuff comes from China and China's still got COVID issues. Those issues are real. But one stat that I find mind-boggling is that if you had bought Home Depot in the summer of 2007, so prior to everything really falling apart, you would have been ahead of the market, the S&P 500, for good by then to 2008. And you would have done a 16.5% total return kegger until now from buying in 2007. Exit just pre-COVID would have been 17.7%. So they had incredible returns, even if you bought it headed into the worst housing crash in a century. Now, you got to say, well, yes, but they built the pro business. Yes, but there is still this enormous TAM out ahead of them. Home Depot is a big position, one of our bigger positions in our portfolio. And this is not because we necessarily say we are totally convinced that next year is not going to decline. But we feel as convinced as we get as investors that when you look at a longer term time frame, this business is absolutely dominant, has a long growth path still ahead of it, and is going to get through any sort of downturn that does come, just like they got through the worst downturn in a century. Well, Sean, this has been an excellent conversation. We like to wrap up with the lessons or takeaways for investors. What have been the key lessons for you to take away that you can apply when analyzing other businesses from Home Depot? There's two sets of lessons. One would be around the necessity of stakeholder analysis that we talked about earlier and the idea that many businesses, without any ill intention, are extracting value from one of their stakeholders. And when that happens, that stakeholder at some point is going to want to get paid back and they might not ever be able to. But you have to think about that in our view as like an off-balance sheet liability. We think Home Depot has managed their stakeholders in a way that has prevented the creation of these off-balance sheet liabilities. And we think it's been very powerful. The other piece is that the pro business at Home Depot is why we own the stock. Some people would say, well, why don't you own Lowe's and which one's cheaper? And for us, we aren't even interested in Lowe's because it's a good business. But the pro business is what's special because it is effectively a B2B business offering mission critical products and services that make up a very small part of the cost structure of the pro contractor. And those sorts of businesses are great businesses because unlike a do-it-yourself customer says, well, I'm just not going to do any work for a while. The pro is like, I can't run my business without Home Depot. I'm running it on top of the Home Depot platform. Because of that, you have this very sticky relationship, very strong. That general concept of being the mission critical provider of products and services to an end customer and that the parts are a small piece of the overall cost structure, we just think it's an important concept in investing. And then the other one is that there's just no such thing as buy and hold. I gave you a stat, this idea that Home Depot from summer of 2007 through now, these great cakers, and you could walk away and say, you know what, that's right, just buy great companies and hold them. But Home Depot has changed a lot over that time period. We feel like there's really no such thing as buy and hold. You can buy a company, but what that company is five and 10 years later will be fundamentally different. The management team will have invested most of the capital that's at work of the business at that point. The services will change, the ecosystem, the environment, everything that will have changed. And so you need to constantly monitor this. So while we have not owned Home Depot ourselves over that whole time frame, we think that any investor needs to understand what has played out over that time frame and what will play out in the years ahead. It's never just about buying a great company and holding it. It's about buying a great company and watching how they dynamically respond to the environment that changes all around them. Yeah, an incredibly timely lesson at this moment in October of 2022. And I've learned a ton. I failed to appreciate just how much difference there was between Lowe's and Home Depot. Thanks so much, Sean, for joining us. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time, Matt. And pleasure talking to you. 
To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 